just in this moment want to recognize that this is not words given by man. This isn't words conceived of in a human mind. These are words that have been breathed out by you. You inspired every detail of what we are about to read. And Lord, you knew that it needed to not only be applicable in the moment it was first heard, but even 2,000 years later, you knew that we would be before this passage, and you knew that you'd be instructing us and teaching us today, and we thank you for that. Nothing else can do that but your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear, and that our hearts would be willing, that we would yield to the Spirit, not the flesh. And God, that you'd be glorified in the practice and the change through conviction that you bring for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts, Acts chapter 8. Let's read together. Beginning in verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. So that's pertaining to last week, the death of Stephen, the first martyr. So Stephen has just been stoned to death. The scripture goes on to say, At that time there was a great persecution that arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. But as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them and the multitudes and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now, let's think for a second about all that we've been learning over these last months as we've walked verse by verse through these first seven chapters of Acts and now we come to this place and we continually have to ask ourselves why does God want us to know this why are we reading this why is this in the Bible is this is this just a historical account for our information or is it more than that is this to instruct us about being Christians and about gathering together and about worshiping God and about how we are to relate to God and what we should expect and what we should look for. How, how else would we know whether what we were doing is correct or incorrect? What if we, if I were to ask you this morning, how do most people gauge their the, the correctness or the biblicalness, if you will, of their worship, here's what would happen. Most church-going people would say, well, I know that what I'm doing is correct or biblical because, and then they would give some human response because, because I see people respond this way or I see this happen or I see that happen. But understand something. That's a very dangerous metric. That makes humans determine how we are to worship God. God determines how we are to worship God. And so when we read in the book of Acts, we see the things that are happening. 
We have to have a, 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 some grid to understand. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that for a long time in places like this, people have made excuses. They've redefined, changed the meaning of what they're reading in order to be able to adapt what we find in Scripture to what they're doing. But if we're just, if we just come before this text this morning with a blank slate, this is what I think we have to ask ourselves. Why do we not more often see, or in some cases ever see, things like this happening today? I think that's the question. Why? And why is it that in Scripture, as we read what the Word of God says about us, we realize that we may be separated 2,000 years from this culture and this setting, but we haven't changed a bit. You know, what jumps off the page at me here is several things. First of all, that man has always been so committed to holding on to his ways. You see, we just read, well, you just had a conversation with Pastor Matt last week about a man getting stoned. Now, if I just say that in a different context, people think he smoked something. <laughs> but what we're talking about is a man bludgeoned to death, pelted with rocks until he perished. We're talking gruesome, unbelievable hatred and torture. And what would it take to to put you in a place emotionally that you could stone another human being to death. And some of you are saying, well, nothing, I couldn't do that. Well, you're wrong. Because you could. And I could. And they did. And why did they do that? Because he was threatening their ways. And man will do anything to hold on to his ways. And so this stoning was just, the, the, it just flung open the floodgate of persecution. But all the animosity and the hatred had been brewing. And this movement of Christianity, in the eyes of the religious leaders, it had to be stopped. Because it was threatening their control. It was threatening the status quo. It was threatening the predictable. It was threatening everything that they had come to, to, to feel secure in. They had built a, a little man-centered religious tent over themselves and they felt protected from the weather. But Jesus showed up on the scene and said, oh, you're, you're, you're anything but protected. And we look around today and we say, now why don't we see things like this today? Well, what do we see? We see busy people. We see lots of busy people. Many of them busy doing good things. But what are they really doing? 
What is the busyness really about? How many times is the busyness and the activities of quote-unquote good things really just a diversion to maintain your ways? We want it our way. We don't want it another way. We don't want it. We don't, we don't like mystery. We like mystery if we're in a movie theater, we're reading a book because it, it's, it doesn't affect us, but we hate mystery in our own lives. We hate that. We want to know. But you see, the gospel, this is what the book of Acts is screaming at us. The gospel is not a, a, a bunch of activity. It's a, a movement. It's moving and it's alive and it's, it's always advancing in one direction. No matter what happens, good or bad, whether the sun's up or it's pouring down rain, whether you got a clean bill of health or terminal cancer, the gospel is advancing in the movement. Did you see that today? Is that what you look around in the context in which you live and you see Christianity? No, you don't. You see people busy in activity and doing things. But you don't see people living like soldiers enlisted by their leader and charged with a very specific and urgent task. Aren't you glad today that our nation is not defended militarily by soldiers who are like the evangelical church of today? We'd be in a lot of wor a world of hurt, let me tell you something. So here's what I want us to do. I want you to just imagine with me. Maybe in order for you to imagine this, you've got to imagine you're with me on the mission field and we're out in some remote region of the world. We're on a mission trip and you're with me and we're walking through the jungle somewhere and we come up on a group of people and they're maybe a family. I mean, I, I'll give you an illustration of something I've seen where I come up on a family and the family's gathered around this this little shrine that they built, and in it's a little carved idol, and they're all bowing down to the idol, and they, they're setting food and valuable gifts and things around the base of this little idol, and the children and the mom and the dad are just bowing down. They're worshiping this idol. And you come with me, and we walk upon this, and you see this for the first time, and it's shocking to you. And I ask you some questions. I say, well, What was most surprising to you about that? And you start saying, well, how could they believe that that little wooden statue would be God? Or you'd have all these things going through your mind. But I'd say, but now hold on, let's, let's ask some, some different questions. For those people worshiping that idol, if you really want to get to the core of what's wrong, you, you need to ask the right question. Which would be questions like, so for them, who determines whether or not they worship? 
Hmm? Is that idol waking them up in the morning? Is that idol telling them, speaking to them? No. So they're worshiping a God that, that they determine, they, they have determined how to worship. How do they know what gifts to lay at the feet of that little statue? They determine that. More than that, how do they determine when that, that statue will be worshipped? Is it one day a week or every day of the week or three times at certain times a day? or what? Who, who, who decides that? Does the idol decide that or do they decide it? And so you realize quickly that the problem essentially and foundationally with this situation is you have people who are worshiping something, but really they're in control of it because they determine how to worship and when to worship. They've determined everything about the worship experience, right? That's the problem. Now I want you to picture a person who comes to church. And they come to church and uh, they come in and Maybe they're in a bad mood. Maybe they don't uh, feel like being there. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the, 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 and the songs start playing, the worship songs start playing, but it's not the kind of songs they like. It's not their preference. So they don't sing. They just stand there because they don't like that song. Nothing's coming out of their lips aren't moving. They're just standing there in church. And people around them are worshiping. They're not worshiping. Maybe they come to church expecting to hear Pastor Matt and then Pastor Tony comes up and they're like, oh, man. I mean, I don't have any exciting black eyes or anything, you know. I mean, I'm just boring me, right? And so for the next 30, 40, 50 minutes, who knows? Their mind just wanders off on something else because they're just not into it. Let me ask you a question. Who determines how that person worships? Let me ask you a question. When you when you get up on Sunday mornings and you say to yourself, ah, I don't feel like going to church today. Maybe, maybe you, you've, you've decided, well, I mean, I've been three times this month, so I'm going to take one off. Or, you know, maybe you think coming to church two times a month. Or I don't know what you think, but all I'm asking is, who determines, who determines that? So let me get this straight. You and me could potentially determine whether or not we're going to sing a song because of whether or not we like it. Or you and me can determine whether or not we're going to go to church because whether or not we feel like it. Or whether or not the weather's good enough. Or whether or not I have anything to wear. Or how cold it is. Or hot it is. Or, and the list goes on and on and on and on. 
Hmm. So is it possible that maybe the reason we don't see the things happening that we see in the book of Acts today, is it possible that maybe, possibly, scores of people, scores and scores of people, are worshiping a God that does not demand wholehearted devotion? Huh? Is that possible? Yeah. So if it's true that there are scores of people that are worshiping a God that doesn't demand wholehearted devotion, then wouldn't it be true according to the Bible that they're not worshiping God and they are in fact worshiping an idol and they are in fact no different than some pagan person in the middle of a jungle bowing down to a statue. Is there a difference? Because the God of the Bible has a lot to say about how you worship Him. He has a lot to say. You don't decide, and nor do I. For example... Deuteronomy chapter 10, the scripture says, well, what does the Lord require of you? Here's a good, a good snippet for us. But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, I just want to ask you a question. If you're here this morning and, you're, and you don't answer this question that I'm about to ask immediately, you have a problem. How are you right now serving God? Because I just read you what he demands from you. How are you right now serving God? Oh, pastor, come on. That's the Old Testament. Well, I don't have time to tell you all the things that are wrong with that statement, but it's no problem. Let's move to Matthew chapter 10. Here's, a, here's, here's one for you. Jesus says, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. We all in a good mood now? You see, don't give me a week off. This is what you get. So here's what I want you to understand. We need to take a little inventory this morning. We need to do a little surgical procedure. We need to understand that that worship according to the Bible. Now listen very closely to what I'm about to say. Worship that does not lead to the advancement of the kingdom of God is idol- it's idolatry. Because in the Bible, worship always leads to the advancement of the kingdom. Worship always yields gospel proclamation. Always. So the way it is on your handout, you can get your listening guide out. Worship that is done to our liking and in our terms is for our glory. And trust me, 
when I tell you. You can reject what I just said. You can rail up against it. But I promise you there will come a day when you will give an account. And I promise you that what I just told you is the gospel truth. And if I were you, I would deal with it right now. Because God will not tolerate all of this unbiblical stuff going on. And we can't with one, one side of our mouth say, God, I want to see your power. God, I want to I see you do amazing, miraculous things around me and in me and through me. And then on the other side, we're worshiping a, a, someone. It's not even him. Because we're determining how we do it. We're determining it. What, everything about it. We decide. It's so crazy to me. When I got saved, I never dreamed that there would, I never dreamed that there would be a, a, a time when I would live in a culture where people just decided when they would, I mean, when they would go to church. I never dreamed that. I've been a Christian for 25 years. For 25 years, I've been in church three times a week for 25 years. Not because I want to be. Because, because there's church. That's why. Because if that's what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to do it. There's a lot of times I don't feel like reading my Bible, but who cares what I feel like? There's a lot of times I don't feel like praying, but who cares what I feel like? I'm not God. If you want to see God move in your life, you need to put Him on the throne of your heart. So look at verse 1. It's going to help us. Now Saul was consenting to this death, the death of Stephen. Now look at what it says. At this time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. So here's our first principle. Principle number one. The power of the Holy Spirit flourishes where... His people own His mission. His people own His mission. So, a great persecution arises. Now, isn't that interesting? Because, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm just saying. That if, uh, if one of you got stoned to death for your belief in Jesus, I would consider that great. But the Bible's like... No, no, that wasn't great persecution. What happened after it was great. That was just the beginning. Stephen getting bludgeoned to death was just the, the beginning. The floodgates now open. So, so what does this look like when, when his people own his mission? Well, first of all, if we want the Holy Spirit to flourish around us, we need to ask the question, well, what's the number one priority of the Holy Spirit? What is, the, what is the, the, the emphasis, what is the, 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 the main central job of the Holy Spirit of God? The answer to that is to make Jesus known. That's the answer. The Bible says in John 16, Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you. He said, I got a lot of things to teach you, but you can't bear them right now. You're not ready. However... You will be when He, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth has come. He's going to guide you into all truth. For He will not speak of His own authority. He's not going to say things of His own authority. Oh, no. 
But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you the things to come. And he will glorify me. And he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The Spirit of God has come to make Jesus known. Now, he's the one who brings conviction of sin. He's the one that empowers you to be able to go out and proclaim the gospel to people and to embrace the mission that, that the, the Spirit of God is the, is the central one involved in the whole process. And so, this great persecution arises. Look at the second half of verse 1. So here they are, great persecution, the Bible says, and then... They all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. Now, that makes sense to me. I mean, somebody gets bludgeoned to death. Well, people are going to scatter. They're going to blend in. They're going to lay low. They're going to take it easy. It's not safe. It's, it's, not, it's not secure. We better, we better just tone it down because, you know, I don't want what happened to Stephen to happen to me or to happen to you. Or so we, we need to just back it off. But look at what verse 4 says. Therefore... Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. You see? That worship, true worship, leads to the advancement of the gospel, to the proclamation of the gospel, even in the midst of great, which trust me, when the Bible says great persecution, no American citizen has any concept of that. But the Bible says that when great persecution comes upon Christians... That's no problem. Their worship leads to the advancement of the kingdom, to the proclamation of the gospel. Wow. So now you have people scattered everywhere preaching the gospel. So here's the next blank on your handout. Lay people are always more effective in evangelism than pastors. Did you know that? Always. It's always been God's plan. Now, notice it says that who scattered? All the people scattered, but who didn't scatter? The apostles, they didn't scatter. A lot of people in our culture are under the impression that, well, if you want somebody to get saved, what you need to do is bring them to talk to Pastor Tony. Now, believe me, Pastor Tony's ready to talk to you. But you shouldn't need me to do that. Lay people have always been more effective than pastors. Why? Why is that? Well, two simple reasons. Number one, just look at the numbers. How many apostles are in the church of Jerusalem? Twelve. How many lay people are in the church of Jerusalem? Now, granted, most of them haven't been Christians, but just like days. How many? 20,000? So what's going to be more effective? Twelve people? With a whole bunch of wisdom and knowledge going out there or 20,000 people going out there saying, hey, I don't know a lot of things, but I know Jesus is the Messiah. And if you put your faith in him, he'll save you. Huh? Okay. So that makes perfect sense. So the, the numbers would declare. But secondly, on top of that, the access. The reason that lay people are more effective is access. Listen, as I thought about this, I thought about, hmm, you know what? I've never been invited to preach the gospel at Mississippi Power. Pete, you might want to work on that. I've never been 
invited to preach the gospel at Memorial Hospital. I've never been invited to preach the gospel where you work. I don't have keys to get into where you work. I don't have security clearance to get into where you work. I don't know the names of the people that work next to you and in front of you and around you. I don't know your boss. I don't know those who are under you. You know them, but I don't know them, and I'll never know them, and I'll never get the chance to preach the gospel to them, but you do every single day. I don't live in your neighborhood. I don't know your neighbors, but you do. You see, I don't walk in the same circles you walk in, but you do. You know thousands of people I'll never meet. Could it be that we're missing some big-time opportunities? To bring about the, re- the proper response to true worship. If great persecution causes proclamation. Number two, the power of the Holy Spirit flourishes when His people embrace His purposes. Embrace His purposes. So it's not only when they own His mission, but when they embrace His purposes. Now look at what happens in verse 2. Then devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and they made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Huh? What? Now, when I say embrace his purposes, here's what I mean. Because, you know, I want to make sure that we all get this because it's going to be real enjoyable. In God's economy, our pain is opportunity. Your pain is opportunity. My pain is opportunity. It's opportunity. Isn't it true, Wayne, that when you found out you had cancer, suddenly you had a whole new audience of people that you worked with, didn't you? Isn't it true that, that when you were going through your cancer treatment that The same guys that you were riding back and forth with every day, suddenly there was a whole new sensitivity to hear. And all all of that was because of what you were going through. But you see, when life was good and everything was fine, and they weren't that interested in what you had to say every day, but suddenly the way you were responding to what you were going through had people's attention. Isn't it true that your blindness is a humongous part of your witness? Right? And I know every day you probably wish, wouldn't it be nice if I could see and think of all the things I could do, but look at how God uses your infirmity to gain opportunity. So what... What do I do with my pain? What do I do with all the things that are the way I don't want them to be? What do I do with my hurt? What do you do do with your loneliness? What do you do with that? How come you... How come no matter what you do, 
no matter what you possess, no matter what you achieve, no matter, no matter what, you're, you're still unfulfilled. It doesn't matter how, how much you gain or it, it just somehow leaves you empty. You got the day after Christmas blues. Ain't nothing but a pile of wrapping paper and credit card bills. So what do you think happens to people when they come in contact with somebody who's facing all the same things that they're facing or maybe even greater things? And yet they have peace. They're not afraid. What do you think happens when, when, I, when I walk into the ICU and, and Mr. Charles is laying there and he's on hospice and he's, he's, he's in process of saying goodbye to this world and moving on to the next world and he's laying there and every nurse that comes in, he's, he is just filled with joy. And he's so grateful and so thankful and so kind-hearted and so sweet. And, so, and I notice when I, it's Christmas Day. Nobody goes to the hospital Christmas Day. I'm walking through the halls of the hospital on Christmas Day. And every nurse that I come in contact with is stopping and talking to me. And, because they're going, why are you here? It's Christmas Day. And they all know Mr. Charles. And they go, well, that man, there's something special about him. And I say, yeah, there is. I say, you know, he was in his 80s when he got baptized. Boy, it ain't about how you start. It's about how you finish. Yeah. See, it's a witness. It's a testimony how you respond to your struggles and your trials, which is really just embracing God's purposes. Look at Philippians 1. It'll come up on the screen. I want you to focus on this with me, okay? Some of you are going to have a... Have a Holy Ghost moment right here. Because you've been, you've been just, you just been getting down in your pity party. Molly grubbing. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Be maybe worship. Is that maybe where we're going? Be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith, for the gospel. Now look at verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Not maybe opponents. They're there by your opponents. Now look at it. This is a clear sign, Paul says. It is a neon sign to them of their destruction. But of your salvation, and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, what if we embrace his purpose? What if all the things that are the way they are right now that you wish weren't? I'm not asking you to be happy that they're not that way. I'm not asking you to be happy that you have cancer. I'm not asking you to be happy that you have a wayward child. I'm not asking you to be happy that you have a tough marriage situation. I'm not asking you that you be 
happy about any of that. I'm simply saying, what if you embrace it as God's purpose and you use it as a testimony and as a witness to the world around you that they may see something different in you, cause them to see the destruction in them because of the salvation in you that you've been chosen that you've been given the gift to walk through difficulty for the glory of God. No wonder we don't see the power of God like we should. Maybe you're here this morning and you're on dialysis. That stinks. And two or three times every week you have to go down there and you have to sit in that place and you have to be hooked to that machine and you're sitting there for hours and it's freezing cold and it makes you feel bad and it's terrible. But here's the thing. There are people in there and guess what? Every person around you is hurting. But you're there. You're the light in that room. And all the nurses and technicians that work there every day is doom and gloom, doom and gloom. But suddenly light comes in the door. And light, same dialysis, same problem, same machine, but something's different. Maybe you're a college student. And you still live at home. Because going off to school wasn't financially a possibility for you. So you're living at home and you're going to junior college. And every time you get on the computer, you see all the people that you graduated high school with. And they're, you know, going to a football game in a stadium with 80,000 people. And, you know, living on campus and enjoying this whole experience of college. And not you. Uh Uh-uh, you weren't at the football game Saturday. You were at home helping your mama put all the Christmas ornaments in the attic. But you know what? Every day you wake up, you go to some junior college campus, and all the students on that junior college campus feel like you feel. And every time you go to a class, there's students in there that that I'm never going to know, but you're there because God put you there around them. And there's instructors there because God wants you there to be the light to them. And wherever you are, instead of focusing on what you don't have, why don't you walk in the glory and the blessing of what you do have? You see, that's worship. Isn't it interesting what happens when we own the purposes of God? Because here's the thing. When the minute you and I start to whine and complain and get less spiritual because of our circumstance and situations, we deny the sovereignty of God, which is denying the essence of who God is. What you say when you do that is that God is insufficient to change my circumstances, that he didn't, he didn't allow this for his glory, that something slipped through his fingers. He made a mistake. He lost you. That's worshiping an idol. I want you to think about something. When we started this journey in the book of Acts, of course, the, one of the pivotal, maybe the, the most pivotal verses in the book of Acts is in chapter 1, verse 8, where the gospel tells us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? That's the commission. Now, they don't know what that's going to feel like, look like, seem like. But did you ever stop to think of the context in which that's spoken? 
that if you just back up a couple verses, before you get to that statement in, in verse 6, Jesus says, there, well, the Bible says, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? That that 1-8 statement came as a response to the question of, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? Which in translation and our vernacular means, is this the time when you're going to fix all the things that are wrong? Is this, God, the time you're going to fix the things that I want you to fix? Is this the time you're going to make the world the way I want to make it? That's the whole context of that. So the answer to, is this the time you're going to fix the world? In verse 7, Jesus says, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in His own authority. For the Spirit of God is going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses. But the context of that is, well, I don't like what's going on. God, are you going to fix it now? And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh. It's not for you to know. That's my purposes. What you need to know is that you are to be my witnesses. You are to worship me the way I determined to be worshipped. You're no good to me. Whining about your situation all the time. You're zero witness. You're just like the lost world. Because it's not going your way. There's no difference between you and a pagan. Do you think it's a coincidence that the Bible says that in Acts 1.8 and that the Bible begins this section in Acts 8.1? I just wonder. So we're going to own His mission. We're going to embrace His purposes. Number three, the power of the Holy Spirit flourishes when His people... Reflect His image. See, the reason we don't see these things happening like we see in the book of Acts is because we don't own His mission. We don't embrace His purposes and big time because we don't reflect His image. Look at verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. What? The Jews hated the Samaritans. Hated them. Sending Philip to Samaria ignores 500 years of intense hostility and hatred. It begins to tear down this barrier that Jesus first brought us into in John chapter 4. Remember that when we went through the Gospel of John in chapter 4 verse 7? I'll just give you a, 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 a little reminder. So, verse 7 says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. All Jesus says to the woman is, Give me a drink. That's all he says. And there's no more discussion. There's no more, Did he get a drink? Did he get, didn't get a drink? He didn't. You know why? Because it's so shocking that a rabbi, that a Jew would speak to a Samaritan. Remember, they would go around. They would spend a whole day and a half extra just so they didn't have to walk through Samaria. Jesus goes straight in there and he asks her for a drink. Verse 9, the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? Why are you talking to me? 
You're not supposed to talk to me. You hate us and we hate you. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She's saying nobody's supposed to cross this boundary. Nobody's supposed to do this. And so back in chapter 1, verse 8, when the gospel said, you're going to go, you're going to be my witnesses even in Samaria, they're like, what are you talking about, Samaria? It's an image problem. Remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. What does image bearer have to do with this? It has everything to do with this. Everything. You see, we image God when we imitate God. We bear His image when, we're, when, we, when we walk in, in the, the likeness of us in Him. But when we operate in the flesh, we don't look like God. We push against the image. I want you to think about something with me. Would there be any racism or segregation if we saw each other, if all people saw each other as image bearers of the same God? You know what the problem is? It's not people's skin color. The problem, it's not their, their ethnicity. It's not their background, the language they speak. It has nothing to do with that. You know what it is? It's an image problem. That's what it is. You see, the injustice and the abuse of power that exists today, it would have no place if people saw all other people as image bearers. If we saw everyone else that we encounter as an image bearer, all of our relationships would change at home, at work, at church. We would be so different, so consciously aware of the God who created us all. You see, we, we bear the image of God by doing what He would do, when He would do it, the way He does it. You see, it's in us. But what happens? Why? Because I know what you're thinking. You, you've, never, you've never intentionally thought to yourself, well, I'm just going to reject the image of God. You haven't done that. But all of us have different prejudices about different things. Some of you have a problem with people who are overweight. Some of you have a problem with people who speak with a certain dialect. Some of you have a problem with people who live certain ways or do certain things. You have a problem with it. You don't like it. And so what we do is we're always making a list in our head. We're always making a list of people we want to invite to our party. The people we like, that we want to bring into our circle, that we want to be around because they, because they fit into our... And then Jesus comes along. You know, Jesus, the one that... You know, the Messiah, our Savior. The Lord comes along. 
Luke chapter 14, for example, and he says, Now when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Oh, no. Lest they come, lest they'll invite you in return and you'll be repaid. He says, But when you have a feast, I want you to invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. Amen. Wayne's right here. You're about to get a bunch of invitations, brother. Jesus makes the point that he's the Messiah for everyone. That's what he's saying. You know that? He's saying, I'm everyone's Messiah. And you know what? Everybody's been created in my image. And everybody bleeds the same blood because I made them. Don't get tangled up on what you see on the outside. Don't get tangled up on what the things that you do or don't like. That's putting you on the throne again. Don't do that. You better be careful. I see some of you hating me. It's okay. The gospel hasn't changed. Your view of those who are different from you if you see people wrongly if you think you can be in the gospel and hate other image bearers, you have the wrong gospel. You have a false gospel. You're not in the gospel. Don't send me an email. Don't write me a letter. Come and talk to me face to face. You got the wrong gospel. I don't care what your mama taught you, your daddy taught you. I don't care how many generations you've thought something. It's not the scripture. And it's not the gospel. And you're going to give account for it. And your shepherd warns you. You see, the church that experiences the grace of God becomes a wildly inclusive place. Wildly inclusive. All you got to do is read the scripture. I mean, it's not just open. It is wildly inclusive. We see when there's a problem in the church, and the apostles say, raise up some men to fix the problem. Every single one of them is of the minority. Then the next thing we know, all these great things are happening, and who is God using? The very people that they raised up. The very first martyr. He's not a Jew. You see, this, this is the confusion people have. People think that to be an image bearer, that, that, that you wrongly think that that's like to be a mirror. Like that you're a mirror. So when, you know, when people look at you, you know, well, you're not a mirror because that doesn't work. First of all, if you were a mirror just giving a straight reflection, then whatever looks into you just sees itself looking back, right? So that's not, that's not right. You're not a mirror. You're an angled mirror. You see, you're a mirror that's tilted to the side so that when people look at you, they see him. So that he is able to minister and see people through you and they're able to see him through you we're an angled mirror we're not it's not a straight reflection 
You think when God looks at me, he sees himself? No. No. It's an angled mirror. That's a good way to understand how being an image bearer is. So in Matthew chapter 5, here's, here's how you know that. I mean, I didn't just make that up. It's what the Bible says. Jesus said, let your light so shine above, uh, uh, before men that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You know what that means? You're an angled mirror. That's all that means. So the reason we don't see the power of the Holy Spirit is because we, we need to own His mission. We need to embrace His purpose. We need to reflect His image. Number four, we need to demonstrate His love. Demonstrate His love. Look at verse 6. And then the multitudes with one accord heeded the thing spoken by Philip. Now understand something. He's in Samaria. Remember, Jesus walks in. The lady doesn't even... We don't even know. Did Jesus ever get something to drink? I don't know. It doesn't say. I mean, after all this goes on, she goes running out there telling everybody, running back into the city going, He knows everything about me. Now there's no... I mean, Jesus is still there like, I really did want a drink of water. Like, I'm thirsty, lady. She's so freaked out that he's talking to her. It's the same people. Philip goes in there, and look at what happens. The multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. Now, that doesn't make any sense. If, that's, if it just said period, end of statement, it wouldn't make any sense. But it doesn't. Look at what it says. Hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. In other words, it wasn't just word. It was word and deed. It was grace and truth. He didn't just go in there and say, all right, y'all gather around. You better listen to me because here's what's fixing to happen. Jesus is the Messiah, and if you don't listen to what I say, well, you're going to die and go to hell and spend the rest of your life in hell. Now, what are you going to do about it? That's not what happened. He demonstrates the love of God. He shares the words of God backed up by the demonstration of the love of God. He had, he had faith that wasn't just about being a hearer, but about being a doer. The reason that the church so oftentimes doesn't have any power is because it's, it looks hypocritical and is hypocritical to the world around it. In the uh, helping the poor, the needy. How are you, how, well, then how, how are you talking about Jesus? You have no credibility. You have to do the things he did to be able to say the things he said. There can't just be words. There has to be deeds. There can't just be deeds. There has to be words. You got all these people running around. They got lots of words and no deeds. Then you got all these other people running around. They got all these deeds and no words. And neither one of them work. You got to demonstrate his love. See, that's what Jesus is doing right now with us this morning. He's demonstrating his love. You know, what, you know what, how he's doing that? Because he's not telling you what you want to hear. He's telling you what you need to hear. That's a demonstration of his love. But now what would happen if what would happen if I was a visiting pastor? What would happen if what would happen if this morning this was in view of a call to preach? <laughs> That'd be good, wouldn't it? Huh? You think any you think anybody goes to a church for the very first time and preaches like this? No. But here's the thing: if you know that I love you, you know that. 
And through the fact that I love you and I serve you and I shepherd you and I, and I walk with you, then you can hear it. But it takes both. You can't just have one and not the other. The Spirit of God displays His power through ordinary people, regardless of the obstacles that are before them, when they're willing to worship Him correctly, leading to proclamation of the truth and action. 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 And so what happens? In Samaria, I want you to just get this, in Samaria. Look at verse 8, in Samaria. The Bible says, and there was great joy in that city. That would be like you going home this afternoon, turning on the news and seeing that revival has broken out in Iran. And the Muslims are slinging off their turbans and throwing away their Korans and worshiping Jesus. That's the same significance of great joy in Samaria. I love this quote. As Christians, we're Christ's ambassadors. We represent another world while we live in the midst of this one. I want to see the power of God. I don't want to say, yes, God's done great things. And isn't that exciting? And he has. But you know what? There's greater things still to come. You put your heart and soul in the book of Acts, it'll jack you up. So here's the deal. If the way you're worshiping and have been worshiping, if you're calling all the shots, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. And you're never going to see the power of the gospel like you could. And you only get one shot at this life. When today is gone, it's gone. And I don't know how many tomorrows you got or I got, but I know this. Every day I get one shot to live that day. And so if I don't do anything else, I want to make sure that I'm worshiping God on His terms the way he has commanded and called me to worship him, that I'm committed to his priorities. Because if I don't see the power of God like I could, I don't want that blood on my hands. He loves you. He loves you. He made you. He wants you. He's saying, come on. Repent. Worship me. 
Watch what I'll do in your life. Watch what I'm capable of. 